Reflections on Herman Melville's Moby Dick by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 As you know, there's a very famous beginning in Moby Dick uh, which uh, corresponds to the very famous beginning in the Inferno uh, and uh, a lot of people who haven't read the Inferno know it's know the beginning lines, and a lot of people who haven't read Moby Dick know the beginning line of Moby Dick. Uh, these are remarkable, uh, and for all that, similar introductions. Uh, the problem is, of course, that they that the beginning line in Moby Dick is not really the beginning of the book, and so what I would like to do today is save the beginning line and and uh, and the beginning chapter and so on, or most of it, and, and, and the other things that we'll talk about later, save that for later and, and uh, look at a theme that is sounded uh, in the most peculiar way in the two little prologues to the book before we get to that famous opening line. And what I would like to do is then uh, go through the text to see where the theme that is alluded to in a strange way in these prologues, is picked up here, there, and yon throughout the text. And I would like to make the uh, unproven assumption that uh, this theme, however obliquely and humorously it's made in the beginning, uh, and however uh, inconspicuously it's referred to throughout the text, is a theme that is of importance to, to Melville. And I want to uh, argue or ur urge us as we read the book to see this theme as particularly important to us and to our age and to some of the questions that we have. You'll remember in Dante's Inferno, Dante is confronted with what might be called the guardians of the threshold, these three terrifying beasts that chase him back when he tries to go up that little sunlit hill uh, and then he falls into the arms of Virgil and he makes his journey into hell. So that he is rebuffed at the beginning of the text by these threshold guardians. And they are personifications of his sin. And that is why he cannot climb the little hill but must go into the underworld. In Melville's text, we have two, two little uh, threshold guardians, quite different from these wild and terrifying beasts in Dante's text, but they personify uh, an incapacity which, though it is less culpable than the outright sinfulness that Dante is, sees in these figures of his, uh, it is at least as incapacitating. So these characters uh, I think, have a parallel in those beasts of Dante's that chase Dante back down the hill. So I want to read the text. The first is, uh, or at least part, part of it, the first is a little brief thing called an etymology. Uh, and in each of these uh, prologues, uh, Melville has bracketed some comments. And here's the bracket in etymology. The pale usher, a footnote tells us that, a pale, that an usher is a is a, uh, an assistant schoolmaster. The pale usher, threadbare in coat, heart, body, and brain, I see him now. He was ever dusting his old lexicons and grammars with a queer handkerchief mockingly embellished with all the gay flags of all the known nations of the world. He loved to dust his old grammars. It somehow mildly reminded him of his mortality. Now, that's really the opening line of Moby Dick. Dusting, uh, as with uh, Dante, uh, you, you can, and T.S. Eliot, you can, you can uh, comfortably assume that uh, Melville meant all the implications that are in these various symbols. Uh, dust being... He says it mildly reminded him of his mortality. 
from dust to dust. And he's dusting, but uh, with a little queer handkerchief mockingly embellished with all the gay flags of all the known nations of the world, dusting his lexicons and grammar. And then we have a little uh, partly fabricated and partly legitimate etymology of the word whale. And the next one is something called extracts, and, and a parenthesis says, supplied by a sub-sub-librarian. Sub-sub-librarian is an assistant, assistant librarian. And then the bracket in this one says, it will be seen that this mere painstaking burrower of a grub of, and grubworm of a poor devil of a sub-sub appears to have gone through all the long vaticans and street stalls of the earth picking up whatever random allusions to whales he could always find in any book whatsoever, sacred or profane. Therefore, you must not, in every case at least, take the higgledy-piggledy whale statements, however authentic, in these extracts for verifiable gospel cytology. Cytology is the study of whale. Far from it. And he concludes by saying, So fare thee well, poor devil of a sub-sub, whose commentator I am, Thou belongest to that hopeless, sallow tribe which no wine of this world will ever warm, and for whom even pale sherry would be too rosy strong, but with whom one sometimes loves to sit and feel poor devilish too, and grow convivial upon tears, and say to them bluntly, with full eyes and empty glasses, and in not altogether unpleasant sadness, Give it up, sub-sub. For by how much the more pains ye take to please the world, by so much the more shall ye forever go thankless. Now, there are clear indications of Melville's sympathies with these two characters, the pale usher and the sub-sub-librarian. He says he likes to sit with full eyes and empty glasses and grow convivial and all that. But there's a passage in the middle of this thing about the sub-sub-librarian. He's speaking to him and he says, Your friends who have gone before are clearing out the seven-storied heavens and making refugees of long-pampered Gabriel, Michael, and Raphael against your coming. Here ye strike but splintered hearts together. There ye shall strike unsplinterable glasses. You finally get the drink of that strong wine when you get there. But this reference to the archangels who in the uh, Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian tradition, it is the angels who are in the business of bringing back and forth the messages from the divine order. And we'll come back to that theme uh, later too. But those uh, who have gone before this sub-sub-librarian are clearing out the seven-storied heavens and making refugees of the long-pampered archangels. But somehow this sub-sub-librarian uh, is stuck rifling through his three-by-five cards, uh, trying to get some grasp on this subject, and the subject is the white. So the two threshold guardians, the pale usher and the sub-sub-librarian, represent two attempts, two very weak, emaciated attempts uh, to comprehend the whale. Both of these characters are charged with the task of cultural transmission. They are threshold characters, and the assistant schoolmaster and the assistant assistant librarian are among those whose responsibility it is to pass the tradition on. And there they are at the, at the place where the transmission is to occur, dusting their lexicons and grammars and shuffling through their citations. And the, and the vital transmission is not taking place. And so they stand there like the, like Eliot saying, uh, we've, we've, uh, swept the floors and garnished the altars, they at least have enough vestigial uh, reverence for the, for the work to be there 
dusting the lexicon and so on. So, so there's a great, uh, you know, there's there's some reverence for this work on Melville's part. But when the transfusion of cultural and spiritual red corpuscles goes neglected by all save for the pale usher and the sub-sub librarian, few of the intended beneficiaries of this effort pick up on their good intentions and become sentimentalist. But most of us pick up on their lifelessness and become uninterested. And so the real work of cultural transmission is, is thwarted or frustrated. And uh, I think Melville presents in those two little prologues a cultural dilemma seen quite obviously from the point of view of a writer. That's what we expect. But, but nevertheless, uh, the symptom he sees is of a larger cultural dilemma. Dusting and no wine. Dusting and no wine. Those are the two chief, it uh, seems to me, uh, elements in these two characters. So they're at a cultural impasse. And we're at a cultural impasse. We're all pale ushers and sub-sub -libra librarians. And uh, we have certain vitalities and we have the cultural heritage, but we don't know how to put them together. Stubb, the second mate, in the uh, central chapter on the on this uh, this doubloon, this gold coin that Ahab nails to the masthead, everybody tries to figure out what it means. There's everybody on on board gets to take their turn at trying to figure this thing out. And Stubb, the second mate, goes up to it and he can't figure it out. He looks at the symbolism of it, tries to figure it all out, he, he, and he goes and gets an almanac, brings the almanac back, and sitting there thumbing through the almanac, looking at the gold coin, trying to figure it out. And then he says, the fact is, you books must know your places. You'll do to give us the bare words and facts, but we come to supply the thoughts. And he shuts the book. An American literary critic, Hugh Kenner, said, a book is a set of words. It is we who give them life, and it is our life that we give them. That is what makes great literature great. It pulls us into it and we discover ourselves in the midst of it. If we can imagine Melville responding to the cultural crisis symbolized by the pale, pale, usher, the pale usher and the sub-sub librarian, we can imagine that he is going to write a book which will draw even such emaciated creatures into its vortex. That is to say, a book that will have that kind of that kind of uh, uh, gravitational force that will pull us into it and have us be in the midst of some discovery. How is he going to do that? He is going to do that primarily, and I, I think I think Melville probably discovered this uh, somewhere in the midst of writing this book. The greatest stroke of genius for Melville in this book is the choice of theme. And that's what gave range and depth and, and, uh, and incredible layers of meaning to the whole, to the whole text. And in a, in, a, in, a, uh, in a chapter called The Fossil Whale, here's what he says. From his mighty bulk, the whale affords a most congenial theme whereupon to enlarge, amplify, and generally expatiate. Having already described him in most of his present habitatory and anatomical peculiarities, it now remains to magnify him in archaeological, fossiliferous, and antediluvian points of view, applied to any other creature than the leviathan, to an ant or a flea, such portly terms might justly be deemed unwarrantably grandiloquent. But when Leviathan is the text, when Leviathan is the text, the case is altered. Fain am, fain am I to stagger to this emprise 
under the weightiest words in the dictionary. Give me a condor's quill. I want to just pause there. It goes on. There's this little litany of how this thing... But when he says, give me a condor's quill, there's a, I, I want to return to at, at the end of the day session to, to another echo of that. Edward Young is an English poet who uh, had written, and, and playwright, who had written that several relatives, close relatives had died, and he had written this thing called Night Thoughts on Life, Death, and Immortality, which was a, uh, a, a very long and impassioned poetic uh, defense of Christian orthodoxy. And in it there was a line where he said, Oh, for a quill plucked from a seraph's wing, from an angel's wing. And this was a line that was, uh, that was being passed around in Melville's time. It was a, was, had to do with wanting to write something really powerful and beautiful. Oh, for a quill plucked from a seraph's wing. And Melville says, give me a condor's quill. The condor not only is a huge bird, but it is also a, uh, a scavenger, an eater of dead carrion. Uh, so it's a little, little cue to what he's doing here. Anyway, here's the litany. Give me a condor's quill. Give me Vesuvius's crater for an inkstand. Friends, hold my arm. Now here's here's a there are num number of Moses references here. Friends, hold my arm. For in the mere act of pinning my thoughts of this outreaching of this Leviathan. They weary me and make me faint with their outreaching comprehensiveness of sweep, as if to include the whole circle of the sciences and all the generations of whales and men and mastodons, past, present, and to come, with all the revolving panoramas of empire on earth and throughout the whole universe, not excluding its suburbs. Such and so magnifying is the virtue of a large and liberal theme. We expand to its bulk. To produce a mighty book, you must choose a mighty theme. So therein lies Melville's genius, and, and I think he happened on it. He had had, a, he had, had a, some experience on, on a whaling ship, uh, and uh, he took up this at just the right time in his own life, and in the midst of it, I think, discovered that the theme itself was going to generate so many absolutely gratuitous uh, symbolisms of great depth and, and diversity that all he was going to have to do is string them together and comment upon them. Uh, indulge me with this, uh, with this uh, assumption, if you will. We are, we are the people of a book. We are all religious Semites in that sense. We rely and have relied on the text of a particular book to put us in touch with the world of meaning, to connect the world of facts and events with the world of meaning. And at the threshold between those two worlds has been, in our cultural heritage, this book. We've gone to that book to uh, connect those two worlds. So when the assistant transmitters of that, or interpreters of that text, or of any text, are joy, joylessly dusting their lexicons, or routinely shuffling their citations, then there's a breakdown of that connection between the world of facts and events and the world of meaning. The text is still there, willing and ready as ever, to this, the, the canonical text, or any text, they're ready to provide that, that connection between those two worlds. But something in our sensibilities has deprived us of the ability to, to make the connection. And I want to analyze what that something is and see how it is that I think Melville uh, uh, focuses on it specifically. So I'm going to call it a hermeneutic crisis. Now, that's a, that's, I know that's a funny thing. Those of you who have been around, uh, we've kicked this term around before, but Hermeneutic means the, means, uh, the study of, of uh, the science of interpretations. 
And it sounds like to, to, to describe a world in which we're bristling with nuclear warheads and uh, people are starving and uh, there's all kinds of atrocities going on, to, to sit here and talk about uh, this as being essentially a hermeneutic crisis, <laughs> I, I, I grant, sounds uh, terribly effete and uh, academic. Uh, but I think a case can be made for the fact that we are a people of the book and part of a, uh, the, much of a lot of this folly of ours comes from a desperate search for meaning in a world where we have lost the traditional way of, of, of connecting with meaning. Not, not, of, uh, not of coming to figure out what it means, but having an experience of meaning. And uh, Jung, says people, Jung says, man will not live a meaningless life. And uh, if it's meaningless, we go out and do all kinds of crazy things in order to, in order to fabricate some kind of, uh, uh, of uh, sense of meaning. So I'd like to think of this in terms of what Mel how Melville is going to respond as a hermeneutic crisis. Psycholo the psychological term for this would be the, the psychology or depth psychology has talked about the conscious and the unconscious and the, and uh, something uh, life goes out of things when there's a barrier between them uh, and there and there needs to be some communication going on between them all the while, or else a sense of meaning is lost. So what I'd like to do is explore a little bit the breakdown of the connection between those two worlds as a hermeneutic crisis and as one that's been brewing in the West for a long time. In the early 19th century, I, you know, one could find references to this everywhere, really, uh, particularly in the last 300 years. But in the early 19th century, John Keats, uh, in one of his poems, said this, Could all this be forgotten? Could all this be forgotten? I know the, uh, Houston Smith said, uh, if there was a perfect gap of one generation, we'd be back in the Stone Age. If there was a perfect break for one complete generation, Fortunately, this, the nature of, of things is such that there's always somebody or some little marginal institution. In the Dark Ages, it was the monastery that kept some vestige of that going. So there's never been a complete break. But if there's ever a complete break, we'd, we'd be back in, in, the, in that old swamp from which we came. So John Keats says, could all this be forgotten? Yes. A schism nurtured by foppery and barbarism made great Apollo blush for this his land. Men were thought wise who could not understand his glories. With a pulling infant's force, they swayed upon a rocking horse and thought it Pegasus. Of course, he's talking about poetry. Pegasus, the blood from the, the head of Medusa that Perseus cut off, dropped to the ground and sprang up as Pegasus, and it was Pegasus' symbol of poetic inspiration. But this idea of swaying on a rocking horse and thinking of Pegasus, that's what happens when that break, he, and he says the break has to do with a schism nurtured by foppery and barbarism. Now how's that for a 19th century poetic analysis of the cultural malaise? A schism between these two worlds Psychology calls it the world of the unconscious and the world of conscious. We could just as well call it the world of facts and events and the world of meanings. How do we have the facts and events, how do we put the facts and events in touch with their, with their, their root meanings if there is this schism between those two sensibilities, nurtured by foppery and barbarism? And of course it is a, it, it is, uh, in religious psychology, it is, the, it is the barrier or the schism between the, the divine and human order of things. And so the 20th century poet Howard Nemiroff said, Our God was to be a breath and not a postcard of the sun setting over Niagara Falls, wish you were here. These are just ways of looking at this, at the problem of the pale usher and the sub-sub-librarian, which is our problem. It sounds terribly academic and anemic to say that th this 
there's a hermeneutic crisis, but just to, just to put it in the context, uh, Christianity was a startling discovery that was necessitated by a first century hermeneutic crisis. That is to say, for a certain, for a few people who had a, had had a very profound experience, the Messiah was tortured to death. Now, the, the, the Holy Text said it wasn't supposed to happen that way. Really and truly, the Holy Text said it wasn't supposed to happen that way, and it happened that way. And these people were had, they were stuck with, with a hermeneutic crisis, which is to say an interpretive crisis. And they were, it looked, it looked at first as though they had only one choice, and that was to abandon the sacred text or to abandon their deepest personal experience. Fortunately for them, St. Paul saved them from that choice because he reinterpreted the text for them. And the New Testament is, is a bold-faced, uh, daring, impudent reinterpretation of the Old Testament. Hermeneutics or interpretation is the way we keep the vitality alive in a world that relies on a canonical text. The beautiful thing about being a people of the book is that you have this text um, that that uh, Second Isaiah, let's say, or Ezekiel, wrote three thousand years ago, and. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to just write a brand new one? Well, you know, the woods are full of people trying to write a brand new one. The problem with writing a brand new one is that it doesn't challenge you to face the hermeneutical crisis. Which is, in our time, the crisis, the hermeneutical crisis, has a particular spin on it. I think is because we have discovered how profoundly uh, crucial, the her how essential the hermeneutic work is. And the reason we discovered that is because we have found that there are that there is virtually no uninterpreted facts available to us about the Christian origins. What we think when we go back, we go back to those texts thinking we're going to get to the bedrock. What we're getting to, what we we pick up and we discover we're reading is John's interpretation or Mark's interpretation or Paul's interpretation. All of those are interpretations. And this led, uh, in the 19th century, led John Henry Cardinal Newman to say, to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. By that he meant there is no, there is no there there. You're going to have to rely on tradition. You think, you, you think you're shunning tradition and you want to just go to the thing itself? The thing itself is tradition. It's the Pauline tradition or the, or the Methian tradition or whatever. In our century, uh, Rudolf Bultmann, made the mistake of calling what he was talking about demythologizing. He said we had to demythologize the text. That's been misunderstood. Here's what he says. This method of interpretation of the New Testament, which tries to recover the deeper meaning behind the mythological conceptions, I call demythologizing, an unsatisfactory word to be sure. Its aim is not to eliminate the myth mythological statements, but to interpret them. It is a method of hermeneutics. Demythologizing has its beginning in the New Testament itself. And therefore, our task of demythologizing today is justified. In other words, it's psychological freefall. We are an interpreter. If we, to the extent that we are people of the book, we are always engaged in interpretation, whether we know it or not. And so we must come to grips with what that means and how how do we respond to that and what is it like as long as the central text can be regarded as literally true the hermeneutical crisis does not emerge it's postponed or uh, are avoided but as soon as it's no longer the case as soon as we can no longer believe the literal truth of the text we have a hermeneutical crisis and there will be, initially at least, these all-too-familiar attempts to salvage some, some thread of believability out of the literal text. 
And uh, we've seen, you know, infinite number of these sorts of things. Elaborate uh, efforts are gone to to get us to, to, to find the remnants of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat or something. The fear of, of uh, legitimate fear in a way, I mean, we can say, oh, well, it's timid or whatever, but, uh, you know, you get out there in the lonely places facing these some of these uh, mysteries of life with no uh, with no categories, it can be it can be a bumpy ride. Uh, you know, it's those are it's not a it's a it's a human understandably human uh, need to try to to try to arrive at uh, to, to try to avoid this this the psychological freefall. Chapter called Jonah historically regarded, and in this Melville pokes fun. At this, uh, at this argument that goes back and forth between the skeptics of the biblical text and the staunch defenders of it, see, in the literal sense. So w watch the funny. Uh, this is just fun. This is this book is Shakespearean in the sense that it's hilarious, and then you turn the page and it just takes you right to the depths. You know, it's one of those. And this is one of the hilarious parts. Now some Nantucketers rather distrust this historical story of Jonah and the whale. But then there are some skeptical Greeks and Romans who, standing out from the orthodox pagans of their times, equally doubted the story of Hercules and the whale and Orion and the dolphin, and yet their doubting these traditions did not make those traditions one whit less facts for all that. Now, he's, now Melville's writing to people who don't believe. First of all, he made up the story of Hercules and the whale. There isn't one. He made up the story of Orion and the dolphin. There isn't one. And then he's talking to people who don't believe in Hercules and Orion anyway. And he says people who doubted that didn't that didn't keep them from being facts. One old Sag Harbor Whaleman's chief reason for questioning the Hebrew story was this. He had one of those quaint old-fashioned Bibles embellished with curious unscientific plates, one of which represented Jonah's whale with two spouts in the head, a peculiarity only true with respect to a species of the Leviathan the white, the white whale, and the and the varieties of that order, concerning which the fishermen have this saying: a penny roll would choke him; his swallow is so very small. But to this, Bishop Jeb, Bishop Jeb's anticipative answer is ready: it is not necessary, hence the bishop, that we consider Jonah to be to consider Jonah as tombed in the whale's belly, but as temporarily lodged in some part of his mouth. And this seems reasonable enough in the good bishop, for truly the right whale's mouth would, hold, would accommodate a couple of whist tables and comfortably, comfortably seat all the players. A little hint that this is all a parlor game anyway, right? Possibly, too, Jonah might have ensconced himself in a hollow tooth, but on second thoughts, the right whale is toothless. Besides, it has been divined by other continental commentators that when Jonah was thrown overboard from the Jopta ship, he straightway effected his escape to another vessel nearby, some vessel with, the, with a whale for a figurehead, and I would add possibly called the whale, as some craft nowadays are christened the shark, the gull, the eagle. Nor have there been wanting learned exegetists who have opined that the whale mentioned in the book of Jonah merely meant a life preserver an inflated bag of wind which the endangered prophet swam to and so was saved from the watery doom. And then he goes on, then he talks about the three days in the belly of the whale, and he tries to figure out where, how the whale would have gotten from wherever he picked up Jonah to Nineveh and how it took three days, and did he go around this way or around that way? And then he said, but all these, then he said, all these foolish arguments of old Sag Harbor only events his foolish pride of reason. Besides, Mel when Melville says besides, watch out, because he's going to come in, he's going to blindside you from this. <laughs> he's going down this list like this, and then he says, besides, besides, to this day, the highly enlightened Turks devoutly believe in the historical story of Jonah. And some three centuries ago, an English traveler in old Harris's voyages speaks of a Turkish mosque built in honor of Jonah, in which mosque was a miraculous lamp 
that burnt without any oil. End of discussion. That proves it, you see. And besides, he starts out saying, a Bible with unscientific, old-fashioned Bible with unscientific plates, and then they get into the big argument. And he says, oh, well, besides, three centuries ago there was this mosque and there was this lamp that burnt without oil. So there you have it. See, make that leap into this other world. But, you know, Yates' thing about Michelangelo left a proof on the Sistine Chapel roof. <laughs> there it is. I want to take a... I, I realize I'm good, but I do want to take a... Just to analyze this hermeneutical crisis a little bit, I want to look at... We could do... There's so many symptoms of it around, but since there's a, a mention uh, in the text of, uh, of both of them, uh, I want to allude to them in contemporary terms a little bit. Uh, two symptoms of the collapse of a communication between these two realms, the conscious and the unconscious, or the realm of facts and events and the realm of meaning. And the two symptoms are narcissism and ideological rigidity. And they are coupled, or at least they overlap. In the first chapter of, of, of Moby Dick, Mel, uh, Ishmael uh, refers to Narcissus, quote, who, because he could not grasp the tormenting mild image he saw in the fountain, plunged into it and was drowned. But that same image we ourselves see in all rivers and oceans, it is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life, and this is the key to it all. The ungraspable phantom of life. And Narcissus drowns in it because he cannot grasp it. I think Melville locates so much of human folly in the inability or unwillingness to allow the mystery to remain inscrutable. We want to grasp it, categorize it, name it, define it, theorize it, dogmatize it, possess it, know it, other things as well. I just want to quote a little story, a little extended metaphor from a, a book by Noel O'Donohue. It has to be a book on prayer, of all things, but uh, he, uses, he, start, he uses a metaphor and he's talking about the book, the canonical book. And he writes this, Sacred Scripture, the holy book, so you must remember this whole elaborate metaphor has to do with the book. Sacred Scripture, the holy book, is like a deep, clear lake in the mountains. It is marvelous experience to swim in such a lake. It is also an expressive and uplifting experience to stand by the lake and see the sky reflected within it and the great mountains. And it may be the works of man along its margins, house and hut and fold. Experiences such as these are good, and the lake lives a special life within those who meet it in this way, allowing it to speak with all its voices, to open out to its full dimensions, above all leaving the way open to the infinity of air and sky of sun and moon and star. But it is also possible to lean over the lake at one particular point and to see first and last one's own reflection, to refuse to see the lake in any other way, to hold fast to the illusion that the whole lake has, so to speak, nothing to do but reflect this one image. Such a man can only protect himself by trying to impose this closed image on the whole world. You see that? It could open to the whole world, you see. Reflect the whole world in all of its contradiction and confusion. And, or we could bend over it and have it have one, be one image. And it doesn't matter if it's my image, my face, that's just one image, or if it's some ideological, theological, doctrinal, you know, one thing. If it just reflects that one thing, then to make up for the fact that it no longer reflects the whole world, I take that one thing and try to impose it on the world. So Clifford Geertz wrote a book called The Interpretation of Cultures, and in it he says, it is precisely at the point at which a political system begins to free itself 
from the immediate governance of received traditions that formal ideologies tend first to emerge and take hold. The need to know. If, as soon as we've lost touch with the mystery, the inscrutable mystery, then we become imperialist. We need to impose something on the world. We no longer can tolerate that, that inscrutability. And one of the ways we do that is that we take the text and uh, turn it into a proof text. This used to be the prerogative, uh, almost the sole prerogative of, of Roman Catholicism, which was that instead of reading the sacred text to, uh, to uh, open up to mysteries, we'd only read it as a, as a, as a proof of the existing doctrines. You'd say, well, that proves this. Aquinas was right. Um, well, that uh, is no longer the exclusive prerogative of the ancient tradition that is now has been taken up uh, in the last century or so by uh, the Freudians and the Marxists and the Jungians and a whole host of lesser players who are perfectly happy to go back to the text, but they use it as a proof text to prove that Freud was right or Jung was right or Marx was right. So if we can't be in touch with meaning, then we get this itch to... Uh, know what it means. If you're in touch with meaning, you, know, you don't bother to try to figure out what it means. The question never comes up. If you're in touch with meaning, it never dawns on you to ask the question, what's it mean? As soon as, you, as, soon as the question, what's it mean, come into your head, that's a symptom that, of the fact that you've lost touch with meaning. There's a scholar whose name is Werner Jaeger who writes a study of the history of the Christian movement, among other things. He says this, allegory has always been at the, at the moment of intellectual development when the literal meaning of the sacred books has become questionable, but when the giving up of those forms was out of the question because that would have been a kind of suicide. So allegory has come in as a way of interpreting the text in a non-literal way and, uh, and therefore using it to get in touch with some deeper meaning. Melville categorically denies that he is going to engage in the kind of allegory that we've known heretofore. In other words, the earlier allegories, the medieval allegories, were allegories in which this means that. But the problem with that kind of an allegory is that it doesn't require a metanoia, a, a conversion, a transformation of consciousness. You just change your reference points slightly, just a new set of dots, so to speak. Uh, it doesn't require an interchange. But what's required to explore the kind of allegory that Melville's going to set before us is precisely that interchange. Namely, we have to become what the New Testament calls childlike, what Paul Ricoeur calls uh, Second, the second naivete. We have to achieve our second naivete, or what Edward Skillebex calls the second narrative innocence. We have to just enter into the mystery of the thing, and so that a something will come along—an event, or a symbol, or a story, or an episode, or a vignette—and it won't have one meaning. It will have thirty, and they will be going off in all different directions. And we just learn, must learn to tolerate that, that whole array of hints that are there. So Melville says in a, in a chapter called The Affidavit, so ignorant are most landsmen of some of the plainest and most palpable wonders of the world that without, without some hints touching the plain facts, historical or otherwise, of, of the fishery, they might scout at Moby Dick as a monstrous fable or still worse and more detestable a hideous and intolerable allegory. The reason he's putting the facts about the literal facts about whaling in here is because these are just as richly symbolic as what he's making up. The nature of this enterprise, the purpose of whaling, the sperm whale had a great huge cavity in his head, and the oil that came out of that cavity was the oil they used to light the lamps. 
back on land. I just take that as a metaphor. This is the greatest creature on the planet, so to speak, but I think we could say it that way. The largest, most mysterious creature on the planet who carries around in his head great quantities of oil that will light your lamps. Now, you, you know, the half the book's written right there. And then he goes on to say, people who sure have indeed some indefinite idea that a whale is, enor is an enormous creature of enormous power, but I have ever found that when narrating to them some specific example of this twofold enormousness, they have specifically complimented me upon my fastidiousness. When I declare upon my soul I had no more idea of being fastidious than Moses when he wrote of the history of the plagues of Egypt. Well, that's a very interesting thing to say. Moses, when he wrote of the history of the plagues of Egypt, what he's saying, I think, here is that there had to be actual events. You know, Buber said about Moses, Moses is the reputed author of, uh, it's hard to believe because he'd have to have described his own death, but anyway, he's the reputed author of the Pentateuch. Uh, but Buber in his book on Moses said uh, the insights in the book of Exodus are not insights that were born at the writing desk. <laughs> they came as a result of meditating on, that is to say, interpreting literal events. You see? Uh, so what Melville is saying is that there is a literal detail, factual detail, that we can then interpret at a deeper level. Moses is a personification of, a, of, of, of an intensely, of a supersaturated religious consciousness that can perceive meaning at the heart of events, can see the, the roots of those events in meaning. And that's the, that's the sensibility that we have to develop. And so what he's trying to do is provide a text that will ease us into that kind of into that kind of world. Well, since he referred to Moses, the question is, uh, and since this book is so, uh, in many ways, biblical, uh, what is the difference between an inspired text and one that's simply the source of uh, the result of the author's genius? I think Melville refers to that. Uh, in a little passage where he's talking about the spout that comes out of the whale. And he says there's a great argument about whether this, whether it is essentially composed of air or water. Uh, and then he explores this a little bit. He says, the whale is both ponderous and profound, and I'm convinced that from the heads of all ponderous, profound beings, such as Plato, Pyro, the devil, Jupiter, Dante, and so on, there always goes up a certain semi-visible steam while in the act of thinking deep thoughts. While composing a little treatise on eternity, I had the curiosity to place a mirror before me, and ere long saw reflected there a curious involved worming and undulation in the atmosphere above my head. And so, here's another one of those, it's like him saying besides, he says, and so, and so, like the spouting whale, through all the thick mist of the dim doubts in my mind, divine intuitions now and then shoot, enkindling my fog with a heavenly ray. I want you to savor this image. It's absolutely superb. His doubts form this fog, and when the divine ray comes through, it illumines the fog. It does not just demolish the doubt. The doubt is the occasion for the illumination, but it doesn't go away. It gives it, gives it a glow. Through the thick mist of the dim doubts in my mind, divine intuitions now and then shoot, enkindling my, my fog with a heavenly ray. And for this I thank God, for all have doubts. Many deny. Deny what? Deny that they have doubts. All have doubts. Many deny. But doubts are denials. Few, along with them, have intuitions. Doubts of all things earthly and intuitions of some things heavenly, this combination makes neither believer nor infidel, but makes a man who regards them both with equal eye.
So this wonderful image of the doubt is the occasion for that inspiration. And all these people who are trying to trample the doubt out so that they can arrive at some certainty are destroying the very thing itself. Paul Ricoeur talks about... Uh, he's, Paul Ricoeur says, you can't really interpret these deep texts until you arrive at what he calls... Uh, he, well, he calls this the uh, second naivete, but he says it, it requires what he calls a post-critical faith, which is to say a faith which is ample enough to house both belief and disbelief. Toynbee says, man cannot live by technology alone. When the temporary Western technological scaffolding falls away, as I am, as I know, as I have no doubt it will. I believe it will become manifest that the foundations are firm at last because they have been carried down to the bedrock of religion. For these reasons, we should relegate economic and political history to the subordinate place and give religious history the primacy. For religion, after all, is the serious business of the human race. That comes at the end of one of his essays. It's very erudite and fascinating thing about history, and he goes on and on about the various ins and outs of historical this and that. And the last sentence is, religion, after all, is the serious business of the human race. Well, there's a chapter late in the book called The Pequod Meets the Rosebud, and it's hilarious. And it's one of those chapters that's both hilarious and profound. Um, the Rosebud is a French ship, and it has two whale carcasses in tow, and they are they are at rather advanced stages of decomposition, and so they sail toward the Pequod for a gam. That's when two ships to get together, and uh, so they're coming from windward, and the uh, and the the, the uh, smell arrives before the before the rosebud does, and uh, and so uh, Stubb, who's the second mate, explains to the only English speaker on board the rosebud that uh, he says it's all nonsense trying to get any oil out of such whales. The point is that uh, if these whales are allowed to decompose, the the sperm oil turns rancid. It's no good anymore. So Stubb simply tells him, "You can't. It's too late." If you if they decompose, and we could explore that at deeper levels of its meaning, if it decomposes, you simply can't use that oil for that. You can't go back and sell it to light lamps with. And the Guernsey man on on board the Rosebud says, "I know that well enough, but you see, the captain here won't believe it. This is his first voyage. He was a cologne manufacturer before." <laughs> Stubb knows more about whaling than anybody on board the Rosebud, so he's going to uh, trick them. So the, uh, I'll skip the, the little interview. So what the, the, what's set up is that uh, is this English speaker on board the Rosebud says to Stubb, well, look, he won't believe any of us. We tell him. You know. And so Stubb says, well, you introduce me as an expert. And I'll just say anything that comes to mind. He can't understand English. And then you tell him whatever you want to tell him. And you tell him that I told you. And, well, as a matter of fact, this is how it goes. According to this little plan of theirs, the Guernsey man, quote, under cover of an interpreter's office, was to tell the captain what he pleased, but as coming from Stubb. And as for Stubb, he was to utter any nonsense he should come, that should come uppermost in his mind during the interview. Anyway... So what happens is that Stubb gets the dead whale. Stubb knows something about it. Stubb at once proceeded to reap the fruit of his unrighteous cunning. Seizing his sharp boat spade, he commenced an excavation in the body, a little behind the side fin. You would almost have thought he was digging a cellar there in the sea. He jumped down onto the rotting carcass, and took his spade and started digging, digging into the, and the stench is coming up. 
Stubb was beginning to look disappointed, especially as the horrible nosegay increased, when suddenly, from out the very heart of the, this plague, there stole a faint stream of perfume which flowed through the tide of bad smells without being absorbed by it, as one river will flow into and then along with another without at all blending with it for a time. I have it! I have it! cried Stubb with delight, striking something in the subterranean regions. A purse! A purse! And what he got was ambergris. Now, ambergris is in the whaling business is a little waxy substance from which perfume is made, ever so much more precious than sperm oil. But it can only be found in whales in advanced stages of decomposition. The decomposing carcass, and he jumps in and finds ambergris. Now, what's ambergris? What's, what, is, what kind of symbolic possibilities here. Something that goes, that is richer and more meaningful than simply the enlightenment, quote-unquote, that might come from the sperm oil and can only be found in advanced stages of decomposition. The text says this about ambergris. The Turks use it in cooking and also carry it to Mecca for the same purpose that frankincense is carried to St. Peter's in Rome. Now, that the incorruption of this most fragrant ambergris should be found in the heart of such decay, is this nothing? Bethink thee of that saying of St. Paul in Corinthians about corruption and incorruption, how that we are sown in dishonor but raised in glory. And likewise call to mind that saying of Paracelsus about what it is that maketh the best musk, and the note says excrement. Also forget not the strange fact that of all things of ill savor, cologne water in its most, excuse me, in its rudimentary manufacturing stages is the worst. Now he's just made reference here to carrying it to Mecca and to St. Peter and to St. Paul's thing about corruption and incorruption. And then he mentions cologne water. We have another reference to the cathedral at Cologne that is always unfinished, as his novel is, as the story of the whale is. It's unmistakable that we're talking, we don't have to even delineate these things too closely, but unmistakable we're talking about something of deeply religious significance. Well, why doesn't it appear that way? at first sight, because Melville is too canny a guy to do that. So in, the, in a chapter called The Castaway, there's an extended simile, which I think is very important before you begin the book to see what he's doing. He says this, So, though in the clear air of day, suspended beneath a blue-veined neck, the pure water to diamond drop will healthfully glow, so a diamond around the neck. Yet when the cunning jeweler would show you the diamond in its most impressive luster, he lays it against a gloomy background and then lights it up, not by the sun, but by some unnatural gases. Then come out those fiery effulgences, infernally superb. Then the evil blazing diamond, once the divinest symbol of the crystal skies, looks like some crown jewel stolen from the king of hell. But let's to the story. Right? I mean, he just tipped his hand right there. He said he wanted to write with a condor quill. Remember that? He takes the diamond like the crafty jeweler that he is, and he lays it against a gloomy background and lights it not by the sun but by with unnatural gases till it looks like a crown jewel from the king of hell. Well, one last um, thing about whaling, and we're finished, and that is what's whaling 
There's a chapter of the honor and glory of wailing, and you wonder, well, what does he mean by wailing? What is wailing? What does the, the metaphor say to us? And he says this, The more I dive into this matter of wailing and push my researches up to the very springhead of it, so much the more am I impressed with its great honorableness and antiquity, especially when I find so many great demigods and heroes, prophets of all sorts, who one way or other have shed distinction upon it. I am transported with the reflection that I myself belong, though but subordinately, to so emblazoned a fraternity. And he talks about the, he talks of all these heroes who were, who were, he, he, says, he says, he says, really they were whalers, you see. Uh, Perseus was a whaler. St. George, he says the dragon was really a whale. St. George was a whaler. Hercules, those monsters he slew, they were whales. Hercules was a whaler. Jonah, we know, was a whaler. And he goes through this little litany of all, the, in other words, Whaling is this is way of saying whaling is simply the metaphor for this great quest that we've all we're always on, and struggling with these great ungraspable phantoms of life that we always struggle with. But apropos of the theme that I've tried to touch on throughout the day, he concludes this review of hero of the heroes of whaling by talking about Vishnu. He says, when Brahma, or the god of gods, saith the Shaster, resolved to recreate the world after one of its periodical disillusions, he gave birth to Vishnu to preside over the work. But the Vedas, or mystical books, whose perusal would seem to have been indispensable to Vishnu before beginning the creation, and which therefore must have contained something in the shape of practical hints to young architects, these Vedas were lying at the bottom of the waters. So Vishnu became incarnate in a whale, and sounding down in him to the uttermost depths, rescued the sacred volumes. Was not this Vishnu a whaleman then? the Incarnation. And the purpose of the Incarnation here is, first of all, the problem is that there has been one of the periodic disillusions. And what is needed is the recreation of the world. The problem is that the texts that provide the inspirational wherewithal for that have been lost and they have to be recovered. And so the God of Gods incarnates Vishnu into a whale, and he dives down and saves the sacred volumes. Baynard Cowan, an LSU English professor, said, Melville's masterwork is the omega point of allegory in our epic. It goes as far as any modern Western work can go in doing what allegories have always set out to do, to save something of value, to save culture through interpretation. So the whale, and the, and the book is simply the whale, is an incarnation of the, of the impulse to reconnect with that text that will provide the blueprint for a... for a uh, recreation of the world. You know, he says here, the architects, uh, they have some practical hints to young architects, um, that the text could put us in touch with the world, put, put the world of facts and events in touch with meaning. It seems to me is, uh, that's the recreation of the world when we are back in touch with some deep meaning uh, in our lives. And, uh, and that it would be something the wrong something wrong with the book, the inaccessibility of the sacred text. A whale has to be incarnated to try to rescue that. And uh, this is kind. This is this story is a kind of um, it's a kind of mirror image of the sacred text. If we want to get in touch with the with the one of the important animating forces behind Melville's 
writing of this text. I think we could probably do it if we thought this way. You have to remember, first of all, Melville grew up in a very rigid uh, Calvinist, Presbyterian uh, environment in which uh, it was all there, laid out, the, everything was strictly, you know, that was a fundamentalist sort of thing. If you imagine in our day, people get interested in dream. And then there are those little books that come along. You say, oh, well, you had a dream about a snake? Well, look under S. There it is, snake. Well, it means this and that. And then you have another dream about something else, turn to that page and find out what that means. And if you lived under those circumstances for very long, you would begin to get this itch. Um, which would be to have a dream or to write a text which would completely confound that, uh, that response. And I think that's what he's done. I think he has taken, he's dealing with the themes out of the Bible and out of Shakespeare and out of Dante, but he simply will not hold still for, what, for that kind of uh, simple interpretation. Even Ahab and... and uh, you know, Ahab has some dimensions that show up late in the book that are strange. And uh, all, you know, you never know where it's going to be. This is the Bible that wasn't written. You want to know where the lost books of the Bible are? Everybody always wants to know where, literally, you want to know where the lost books of the Bible are? It's the book written by Ishmael, the outcast. He has Abraham, he has the blood of Abraham in his veins. This is the Bible that hadn't been written yet. 